Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, November 23rd, and I'm your host, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by Motley Fool analyst Sam Dale for his industry-focused debut, and we're going to be chatting about the fast-casual salad chain, Sweetgreen. Thanks for joining, Sammy. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, this is the first time, I believe, that you've been on Industry Focus, and I'm really excited that we had the opportunity to talk about a company that I know is so close to your heart personally. <laughs> you've told me in the past that you you invest a bit with your stomach, and that's a mentality that sits very well with the way that I invest as well. So I'm curious, to kick off this conversation, what does your stomach say about Sweetgreen? Well, you know, yeah, like you said, I'm... I'm big fan of in restaurant stocks and and um looking into those and it's something that's very easily to easily digestible or tangible so with sweet green you know i'm hungry i'm hungry for the stock um but i want to see how the salad's made so that's kind of where i could sum up my my food analogy here of 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 our analysis here of the of the company and the stock I love it. And we talk a lot about businesses like Sweet Green on the Consumer Goods Show. And I love the fact that it's so approachable to so many investors. I myself, I remember when I was just an intern at The Motley Fool, the very first company that I pitched uh, during my internship was actually Panera. And I've heard that Panera is headed back to public markets. Maybe we'll do a show about that at some point in the future. Uh, but it sit, it sits so well with me because it was so easy to understand, just a business model that I think all of our listeners can associate with. But in the case of Sweetgreen, I think there's a fair number of listeners that may have never eaten at a Sweetgreen or may have never even heard about a Sweetgreen. They only have around 140 restaurants in 13 states. So it's not small by any means, but much smaller than, say, the Chipotle's or the Panera's of the world. Um, and it's also good that we're, well, admittedly pre-recording this, releasing this episode during Thanksgiving week when everybody's probably thinking about sitting around the table, eating a big meal with friends and family. Maybe salads aren't the top of those those meals, but they certainly are maybe a side dish. So let's try to figure out if Sweet Green is a main course for our investment portfolios or just something that we're going to have on the side. When you look across the business, what stands out to you as as some of the good aspects here? I think the thing that really stands out to me is the the technology component and the digital component of the business. Now, I know a lot of companies are are going digital, going tech, and that's kind of their way to 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 maybe use some buzzwords. But with Sweetgreen, I get this feeling that they they really ingrain it into their business model, and it reminds me a little bit of how Chipotle and Domino's and Wingstop kind of use technology as the core component of their business to drive their business, get users, keep them like retain you like I, I say users, but I mean um, 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 consumers, and then have them continue to 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 come back to the restaurant and using data from that technology to to bring them back see what they're what they like make it make it interesting and exciting for them i think that's really stands out in terms of their business it's a great thing from an investment perspective but kind of irritating i think from a consumer perspective when a business is so digital uh, maybe i'm overstating it but 
for instance, I have eaten at Sweetgreen in the past, but I've never ordered from Sweetgreen. And in preparation for today's show, I decided I was going to order from Sweetgreen. And in order to place an order um, on their website, on their app, um, essentially any order that's not placed through a third-party provider like Uber Eats or Grubhub, you have to make an account. And while I was mildly put out by the fact that I had to come up with a password for Sweetgreen, it's really smart on the part of Sweetgreen's business because now they have me in their system. I'm one of those 1.3 million active customers now, people who have put their email address in with Sweetgreen, who they now can you know, try to get me to come back more frequently again in the future. So they do a great job of integrating that digital sale process in. And more than 70% of their sales over the past 12 months have come from digital sales. And while that is kind of wide reaching, they include essentially anything that was made on Sweetgreen's app through a third-party provider or digital scan to pay in store, it does show to so does go to show just how digitally native their consumers are. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, it's interesting because they're one of the few that I've seen that they that have at least specifically said they 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 want to they, they have delivery in house. So they do while they do use the Ubers and the, the third party marketplaces, they have native delivery, which they launched in January of twenty twenty, and that's really a way for them to capture that customer data and capture that customer and service that customer. They actually emphasize owning the customer and keeping delivery in house in their in their filings and in their in their in their and in their discussions, you know, because they want to retain kind of a significant bargaining power and they they did reach like a deal with Uber Eats in 2019 that worked out very well because they have that that native delivery in-house. So I think they're really trying to focus on that. What I was surprised to learn about this business is that they actually got started here in DC where, where I'm located all the way back in 2007. It was founded by three college students. They wanted to have healthier but fast food options. Um, and they're all over the place around the DC area. I thought they were nationwide as a result. I was proven wrong. Uh, but it does kind of bring up the fact that this is a, a founder-led business, right? It has that kind of cute backstory. And it reminds me actually of another business. Now, it is private. I believe they also got started in DC, and that's Kava. And I, I'm going to go on a tiny tangent here. I love Kava. I'm obsessed with it. If it went public, I probably wouldn't look at the valuation. I would buy shares just because I love the product that much. But Kava actually bought Zoe's Kitchen, took it off of public markets a few years back, and then never really did anything with it. Um, maybe converted some stores, but largely still operating it in a similar manner. Um, I personally, not that this matters, but I much prefer kava to sweet green. Uh, they're both very delicious. Having eaten both, I can say they both are very tasty. But kava is more affordable and lets you get unlimited toppings. My experience at sweet green felt like I was being shortchanged, right? I, I paid up for the toppings, the per topping orders, and I got like two sweet potatoes, a tiny handful of cilantro. It was like, no, give me unlimited toppings. I shouldn't have to pay 50 cents for a lime wedge. Yeah, no, I, I've heard of Kava actually. I think it's Mediterranean, I believe, correct? It is. So not yeah. exactly the same market, but very Mediterranean flavors. And very like fast, casual, kind of build your own while you're in the line. And, and I haven't actually tried it. I've been meaning to try it. And I'll be honest too, I haven't even tried Sweetgreen, the food yet, but but I, I definitely would like to. They're, they have a huge presence here in New York where I'm, I'm located. And um, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But, you know, they it's such a big space and when it comes to like people and their 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 food cravings like i don't know if you if 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 you're like this but i always need something different like i couldn't eat the same thing like 
every day of every week. Like, you know, I could go to like a sweet green or Chipotle two or three times a week, but I can't go every day. I like to vary up my taste. So they do play in a big, big market. And what cool, cool thing is they started in like a 500 and something square foot location, their first location DC. And what was interesting about that too, is they, because they were so space constrained, they built their business model to be efficient because of their space constraints. And that efficiency shows up. And I know we haven't quite gotten into talking about their financials, but I'll say in comparing the financials as they exist today versus Chipotle, when they first went public, a lot of their metrics are pointing in a similar direction. And it's probably an oversimplification to say, oh, maybe this is the next Chipotle because they're each their own unique beast. But I do think they exhibit some similar characteristics. Um, you mentioned that you're from New York. We should definitely mention that. Um, there are 13 states that that Sweet Green is open in. Uh, DC was their home state, but New York, right? The New York state accounts for 34 of their stores, um, a pretty large portion of that 140. But New York, the metropolitan area, right? So Manhattan, the Bronx, Brooklyn, more than a third of their sales come from just those geographies alone. So they very much are concentrated in what I imagine as this more urban, affluent um, lunch purchaser, right? Maybe this was somebody pre-pandemic that was going into the office every day and then visiting a sweet green for lunch. They are upscale as a result. I mentioned that their prices are probably a little bit higher, you know, a few dollars higher than what you would expect to pay at a Chipotle. But it is a risk. I think it's an interesting dynamic, but a risk worth noting is that they are so heavily concentrated in New York. And I have to wonder what their business looks like as we come back and we rebound and maybe more people work from home permanently. Yeah, no, definitely. If, you, if you're if you from New York and you look, I actually looked for Sweetgreen in my area. I'm in Queens to, to go try it out, but it's it's even when you say New York, it's even concentrated more towards specifically Manhattan. So Manhattan, you you know have more of the a little bit of upscale crowd, the lunch crowd typically, and they were hit pretty hard during the pandemic, where a lot of the urban centers in New York City, at least that I know of, were were, were closed per, uh, temp- temporarily or or hit pretty hard. So um, yeah, I mean they're 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 very they're very concentrated in urban areas. Let's talk about how that translates to financial performance, because I was actually really impressed with a lot of the store-level financial performance that they broke out. One of the numbers that they focused on was cash-on-cash returns. That's the profits for the store, right? So we're talking about on a store basis over the past 12 months, over the initial build-out costs. And they're pretty decent. I mean, 2020 was an abnormal year, of course, but they're usually around 40%, which is pretty outstanding um, for the store of this nature. And restaurant-level profit margins were around 16% in 2019. Again, while these are still kind of challenged from 2020, they have started to rebound into 2021. Those restaurant-level profit margins at around 12% for 2021 right now. And I always have to wonder how that New York dynamic plays into it, but essentially what those numbers are saying is, you know, this is not a franchised business, this is a company-owned business, but if you were going to franchise and open up a sweet green, then doing so would result in pretty quickly becoming profitable on that investment, which makes expansion, at least looking at these numbers, look extremely attractive. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, being that it's company owned, it definitely has higher higher investment costs, higher build out costs, higher capital intensity. Um, but having been a franchise owner in the past, I know um, while on a financial perspective and an investor perspective as stock investors, the financials for a franchisor looks phenomenal. It's all high margin cash, you know, uh, 
uh, flowing business. But the problem that happens is the brand could erode because you're franchising it to so many different people and you grow very fast across the country. Um, but then the brand could erode, the stores may lose consistency and then, and then it's, it's, it, it sometimes hurts in the long run. So some, some successful restaurants, um, like Chipotle never franchise and that's that or Starbucks is because they wanted to have more control over their, 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 their product and their brand. I still remember, you know, Texas Roadhouse as a great example of that, a business that had initially started with a franchise model and then really quickly realized we're giving up a lot of profits by doing this. Our stores are really attractive on a unit basis. So let's buy them back. Let's be a company-owned business. And that has, well, obviously 2020 was a challenging year across the industry. Up to that point, really resulted in gains for Texas Roadhouse shareholders. One of the things that I was kind of disappointed to see, or not see in this case, was restaurant-level cash flows, which Sweetgreen didn't break out. I was surprised by that because it's a common metric for fast casual restaurants. Um, it's been a key input into performance metrics for businesses like Chipotle. But what they did break out was their average unit volume. So essentially how much sales are going through in each store. And in the most recent quarter, that was around $2.5 million. Or I should say over the prior 12 months, around $2.5 million. Um, this is still below the $3 million peak that it was in 2019. So the pandemic, even throughout 2021, is impacting this business. But for comparison's sake, when Chipotle went public, they only had around $1.4 million in sales per store and 450 stores. So this is actually, at face value, again, pretty impressive. My biggest concern is just that they're not going to see a huge rebound because of the lack of office workers in places like Manhattan. Yeah, I mean, on the face value, the, the AUV has definitely stood out to me because looking at across the, the kind of the industry, Chipotle, like you said, is now around two and a half million as of their most recent quarter. Um, McDonald's is about 2.6 or so um, in, in that range. And then for like really comparison purposes in terms of like maybe like the one of the best re restaurant operators, Chick-fil-A is around the 4 million AUV mark. So now Chick-fil-A is much more much more like across the country and oh, lots of different locations beast. you're never They're gonna be chick-fil-a <laughs> yeah but they are they too are not a franchise restaurant they oh actually they are a franchise restaurant but the way their model works it's almost like they're not a franchise restaurant. It's, it's it's a little different the way they franchise it's actually pretty smart but but the AUVs definitely impressed me and but like you said the concentration of the urban areas and and maybe you know those will tend to have higher AUVs than like more of the suburban type locations. So um, it would be interesting to see how, as they expand out, how those AUVs kind of, kind of grow or not grow um, over time. Yeah, this is probably the biggest part of the picture for me. So if I was um, going to be buying shares of Sweet Green. The reason why I'm buying shares of Sweet Green is because I really believe in the expansion model. They only have around 140 stores right now, which is not a ton of stores. Um, they're not a franchise model. So this is a business that is looking to raise capital so they can make some very aggressive expansions beyond just the 13 states that they're in right now. It's truly a growth by new restaurants initiative. And I think if you're going to invest in Sweet Green, you have to buy into a couple of things. The first one is, is that they can replicate the success that they've had in urban markets with more suburban markets. And 
It's interesting thinking about a salad chain as successful in suburban markets, in part because a lot of what leads to success, um, and I think we're seeing Chipotle do this now with suburban markets, is things like drive-throughs, um, you know, really quick, fast food. And salads have been a harder proposition, especially salads made with things like local and seasonal ingredients. I will say, management has made some interesting comments about this in the past. They launched, they still want to be, I think calling them a salad chain is maybe underselling all the products that they offer, but they want that to be their focus, right? The natural greens. And they launched things like the buffalo chicken bowl to convince people who don't like salads, or I should say don't think they like salads, that they actually do and they can eat something at sweet green. So I'm not positive that the expansion is going to be as seamless as it was for a business like Chipotle that was selling burritos and chips, but I certainly think it's possible. And if you buy shares of Sweetgreen, I think you're buying into the success, the idea that they'll have really large success in suburban markets. And you know, if 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 this was to come out maybe ten years ago, prior to the pandemic, I would probably be a little more skeptical of how they would perform in the suburban markets. But now, after the pandemic, and given their f- focus on technology and digital um, and some of the other innovative things they've done um, in cityscapes, which I think they could replicate as well. Um, Also, given the fact that more people are working from home, like we don't know the exact numbers of how how many how much people are going to be working from home, whether it be 100% go back to the office or 50-50. We don't know what that breakdown is going to be. But my my assumption is that it's going to be higher than it was historically. And I feel like when you're working from home, I work from home, you want to have some some lunch options that you would have had when, when you're in, uh, in an office. Um, and you want to have you know, healthy options. There's more people looking to, to, to eat healthy. And sometimes in certain locations, you don't have as many health options as you would in more of a city or urban um, landscape. So I think I'm a little less skeptical now, given that people are more comfortable ordering digitally. People are more comfortable ordering digitally ahead and maybe picking it up. Um, while drive through wouldn't work for salads, um, because in fast casual, I think Chipotle is still trying to figure that out. I could see where they have maybe an order ahead and then you just drive through, pick it up, and then you just go and it's already paid for. So there's some innovative things they can do to kind of make that that work. So I would I would say I'm a little less skeptical now than I would have been maybe in the past. It's so interesting. I find myself going back and forth on it. You're so right. On one hand, we've become a lot more digitally native, right, as just a population over the past year and a half, two years. But at the same time, I think people have learned that they're capable of cooking, right? When we talked about that period where Sweetgreen was shut down and a lot of stores and restaurants were shut down, people learned, right? They cooked. They they you know weren't buying food as much. So I, I wonder to the extent that a lot of these sales don't come back. And there is a rebound. We mentioned this earlier. The business has rebounded a bit into 2021. But when I look at that average revenue per store, it's still not about what it was in 2019. Growth has slowed versus the accelerating growth that they were experiencing prior to 2020. Maybe some of this is still that fallover, right, from 2020. We're not done with this pandemic yet. But at the same time, I think it's maybe just a harder value proposition. Uh, the last thing I'll mention here is also when I ordered from Sweetgreen, and, and I say I call it research for today's show, 
Um, I was told uh, both by the website as well as by a very large note on my salad when I picked it up that I should definitely consume it within 15 minutes. And I felt very threatened by the fact that I lived about 10 minutes away from the sweet green. So I was probably not going to have time to immediately consume the salad. It was delicious, even though I maybe consumed it 30 minutes after they had made it for me. But it does make me wonder if they're that concerned about the quality of their food being degraded by things like sitting out for longer periods of time, then how do they do with a consumer that is suburban, again, as opposed to urban, where you're driving to go pick up food as opposed to walking? One thing I will um, will uh, throw out there that I think could, it just came across to me, but if you read about their outpost locations where they actually have like basically like like little shelves it's almost like the amazon web lockers for salads they have them in 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 the city i think they have them in manhattan they have um outpost locations where they'll deliver the salad to those locations and then if you're working in office you can just pick it up and then go right back to your office i could see them doing or trying something like that maybe let's say in suburban markets where the local target or the local grocery store or local places of of congregation or frequently um um trafficked places where they put things like that where you can go in and just pick up your food and then and go back to your your home or 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 wherever to eat and and as they grow and expand that 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 commute time to to get to the sweet green and back to your home to consume it will will be short shortened as they grow so that they can kind of solve a little bit I want to poke you about what you think the biggest risk is for this business. But before I do so, probably worth mentioning that while we talked a lot about the units on a store basis, we haven't really talked about Sweetgreen as a company. And despite being pretty decent in terms of uh, margins on a restaurant level, the financial picture is a bit more challenged as a company. Um, while the restaurants have been profitable, Sweetgreen's corporate overhead and marketing expenses has produced just a, a widening net loss every year since 2015. So this is not a business that is profitable uh, in terms of the corporate aspects. I will say they're raising money to expand and they have a very small number of stores right now. Chipotle was profitable when they went public, but were barely profitable. They had just become profitable that year if memory serves. Um, they had experienced a number of years of net losses uh, before building up to profitability. I think this business can get there, but we're definitely floating them capital as shareholders so that they can continue to operate their business, continue to spend a decent chunk of money on things like overhead costs and especially those marketing costs and continue to build out new stores. Let's think about those risks. I'm curious. I, I think you're a fan. I think I'm, I'm. If I'm judging your opinion correctly, I think you look more favorably as opposed to you know disfavorably on this business. But what what breaks this thesis for you for Sweetgreen? I am a bit of of a I would say cautiously optimistic fan, primarily because of kind of the the the, the brand concept, the technology, the the potential. Um, but I think. The problem with restaurant investing too is what might seem like a very interesting, cool brand. Consumer tastes are fickle, and and whether this becomes like the next Chipotle or the next kind of craze, you know, when Chipotle came out too, it was like, well, how big are they going to be? Just being a burrito chain, you know, like there was skepticism there too. Same thing here. How big can they be? Just being salad? Are people going to get really that excited about salads? Um, and 
that's yet to be seen. That can be judged as as you know time goes on and as they grow and expand. I think a lot of the biggest, I feel like the biggest risk is financially in terms of they do spend a lot on their technology. They do spend a lot on investing in the business. And while over the long run that could be good, that gaining that leverage from those those that operating leverage in their model um, and hitting scale is whether they can do that on a consistently profitable basis will be a huge risk um, to their to their business over the long term. For me, I, I will say, I love that you bring up the the feelings of Chipotle, right? How big can a burrito chain get? Because I think what differentiates Chipotle and what differentiates Sweetgreen, and I'll even throw Kava in there. I know Kava is not public, <laughs> is that the people who eat there, and this was the true. This is true when Chipotle went public, and it's still true to Chipotle today is that there are a lot of very loyal consumers. And there was a mentality that people would say, man, I could eat this three or four times a week and not get sick of it. And I hear, heard that about Chipotle and you know people didn't believe it, right? It's just burritos, but it was very true. Um, I feel that way personally about kava. And I've heard it about sweet green as well, is that the people who eat there consistently love it and they don't tire of it, especially given sweet green's rotational seasonal menu. I think my biggest concern, right, the thing that kind of breaks the thesis for me is that there's a cap here for how much somebody's going to be willing to pay for a salad. And with uh, pretty expensive marketing costs, as well as the rising cost of things like labor, I wonder how much of that can flow down to just margins for investors. So that makes me a little bit nervous. Yeah. And, and you're right. Like Sweet Green does have a bit of a passionate um, customer base and oh, yeah. you know, check I think out its I saw, Twitter account if you haven't already. Yeah, I think they have like a half half a million followers, I, be, I believe, across all their social media. And then some users on their app I've read order four times a month. Some of their elite members spend almost a thousand dollars a year on salads. Like these are the so yes, like how much would one be willing to pay fifteen dollars, let's say, for salad? I don't know exactly how much the the cost of their salads average out to be, but um, I think also with with them getting into like the the salads, the the grain bowls, some of the other combinations, having some good proteins and, and stuff in there um, will help kind of consumers feel the value of what they're paying for. And that that worked with Chipotle too, that 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 feeling of you're eating something that's like maybe not necessarily in Chipotle's case, good for you, but good ingredients, like healthy, clean ingredients. And I would postulate that with salad, you could eat it more often if it's enough variety where you feel good it makes you feel good because it's a salad it's healthy so you would want to go back and once you get into that that mode of of, of doing it but um yeah it's it's it should be interesting to see how they how they how they keep those people coming and in succeed in other areas where where maybe people just don't want to pay 50 dollars for a salad well, I'll certainly be keeping an eye on it, and I'll also be keeping an eye out for you, Kava, if you ever decide that you <laughs> want to go public and or pay me for being a brand ambassador. Uh, <laughs> any involvement that you want with my life, I am there for Kava, and I will occasionally eat at Sweet Green, I suppose, if I have to eat a salad. <laughs> uh, but Sammy, thank you so much for joining. This is a wonderful debut episode for Industry Focus, and we'll have to do it again. Thank you so much, Emily. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet at us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. 
Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Sammy Dale, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and full on. Thank you.